0: There once was a bank in Binghampton, New York, that had decided to send some flowers to one of their competing banks who had recently moved into a new building. But there was a mix-up at the flower shop, and um, the card that was sent with the arrangement actually said, with our deepest sympathy. And of course, the florist, when he found out... Um, was extremely embarrassed, and he apologized profusely. But he was even more embarrassed when he realized that the card intended for the bank was attached to an arrangement sent to a funeral home in honor of a deceased person. And that card read, Congratulations on your new location. (laughs) Now, that card might have not been such a bad one to receive for a believer who had passed. But it definitely would not have been a good card to receive for the funeral of an unbeliever. So this morning, we're going to think about why this is so as we examine the story of the rich man and Lazarus, a story of reversal. For one of these men could have been congratulated for his new location, but the other, of course, it would have been with deep sorrow that they received news of a new location. As we focus our attention on the story today, Jesus is going to do something extremely unique. Something he's never done in any of his other stories. And that is this. He's going to explicitly name the characters of his story. He names Moses, he names Abraham, and he names a man named Lazarus. Why this is significant is because Jesus, after teaching explicitly on the distinctiveness of the disciples in marriage and in money is going to drive home for us the stark reality of what happens to a person when he or she dies in their sins. Now, so if Stephen talked about last week the distinctiveness of a disciple in this life, what we're going to see is how distinction matters in the next one, in eternity. And so Jesus paints this picture, which should provide for us both a significant warning, but it also a significant encouragement for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It truly is a story of a great reversal. So Jesus structures his story into two parts and provides an application. First, what we're going to see is Jesus uh, contrasts two lives And then he's going to expose for us a conversation of eternal consequence. Lastly, by providing us the application of what the difference maker is between people. So look with me at verses 19 through 23 as we first see a contrast of life. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. And he longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table. But instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. And one day the poor man died. He was carried by the angels to the side of Abraham. Abraham's bosom, the original language says. And the rich man also died. And he was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up. and He saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus. At his side. The first contrast that we see in this text is between the rich man and Lazarus in this life, in earthly life. Look at verse 19. It says, The rich man was clothed in what? Purple, Purple it's important, and fine linen, and he feasted lavishly every day. This guy, by all accounts, was a big deal. This is a dress I pulled off of the internet. Of It's one of the five top five most expensive dresses ever created in the world. And I find it ironic that there's a whole bunch of peacocks further up. <laughs> no! <laughs> um, but here's this beautiful gown that would cost ridiculous amounts of money. And I think this is the, the right perspective to have about what Jesus is trying to explain about the rich man. Because 2,000 years ago, church, the only way to get purple dye was to derive it from snails. And this was an extremely strenuous process. It was one thing for someone to have a purple garment in their closet. It's far more another to have a closet full, which is what Jesus is saying here. It would be like dressing for a ball or a gala every day and eating like you were at a ball or a gala every day of your life. This is a testimony of a man who made it, who by all accounts had everything the world has to offer. So Jesus illustrates that this man's abuse of money by contrasting him with another character in the story. Lazarus and this now this is key because if you'll remember the context of Luke 16 it's who Jesus is talking to he's talking to Pharisees look back look back uh, at verse 14 so Jesus has been teaching on money and marriage and the distinctiveness of a disciple right and then we get verse 14 from the Pharisees who are listening and it says that they scoffed at him they scoffed at these teachings There's disbelief. Of course, you would say that, right? However, you would interpret that, it should be done in light of a wrong disposition of the heart. And what Jesus is exposing is that they didn't view the way they were using money as wicked, which it was. So here's the contrast. This is an old Renaissance painting of Lazarus in Luke 16. So that you can kind of get a visual with what's being described here in the Bible. A man with sores. A man who's a dog is licking those sores. He's leaning up against the gate. He's, he, you can see the bones in his body because he's so famished. This is the man that Jesus now draws our attention to in verses 20 and 21. And Jesus gives us five key facts about Lazarus that we need to understand. First thing is that we're told he was a beggar. And his poverty was the kind where he had to beg in order to live. He had no other choice. It would also seem from the rest of Jesus' characteristics he provides for Lazarus that uh, Lazarus was unable to work, in fact. The second characteristic Jesus says is that he was full of sores. Whatever sickness Lazarus had, it was not pleasant you can be sure he must have been so miserable in this illness. Such a condition that according to Jewish law, he would have been seen as an untouchable, as someone to avoid, which leads us to understanding that he was a very lonely man during his time on earth because of this illness. The third thing Jesus explains is that he was at the rich man's gate. That tells us that Lazarus... Or he was laid at the rich man's gate. So that tells us that Lazarus could not walk. He was in fact laid in this place. And the reason he was laid in this place is obvious, right? Because a man of great means lived in that house. So Lazarus could only hope the rich man might show mercy to him. Or give him something to eat. Or help him with his sickness. The fourth thing we get from the text is that Lazarus simply desired to be fed. With the crumbs that fell off of the rich man's table. This tells us that he was not welcome inside. He was not invited in. and tells us that he only desired. Whatever fell on the floor. To eat with the dogs. So that he could live. And the fifth and last thing. Jesus says is that there were dogs. Who were licking his sores. So to top it all off. You have these animals who would not leave him alone. And he doesn't seem in the text like he has enough strength to be able to shoo them away. He is a testimony of a miserable, broken man in pain. in desperate need of mercy. What a contrast, right? Difference. Two men, close proximity, one with the means to show mercy, and another who could only hope to receive it. And I can think can't help but to think of all the texts in scripture that give us direction for how we should act or view a circumstance like this. My brain immediately goes to First John chapter three, verse seventeen, which says that if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. John says, man, I can't see how God's love abides in them. It doesn't make sense for someone who knows God to act in such a manner. It doesn't jive, right? Now, remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and these were men who loved what? Money. It's okay to talk in church, they loved money. Men who knew the law. And the rich man likewise, he would have known the law. But God's love would not abide in him. This is the reality that separates these two men. God's love and who it abides in. And it makes me wonder, how often do we see other people in need and simply ignore them? So I think the first practical question we must ask ourselves is, who do I avoid? Who do I avoid? Who do you withhold mercy from? Or you might say, well, you know, Pastor Neil, I don't really withhold mercy, but I don't exactly go looking to express God's love to somebody else. Or I don't go looking for an opportunity to show mercy to someone else. Which is an issue with our hearts, right? Because the Apostle John, he cannot see how it's possible to love God and not help someone in need. Not express that love we've received to others. First John also says that we love because he first loved us. So we've received the love of God and suppressed it in the world. How could this possibly be? And I know like. It might not be explicit. Like you're stepping over. Your gate over a homeless person. Right? Who needs help. But it might be like. That person really irritates me. And I don't want to engage them. Or this person. Bothers me or so crass. Or, or whatever. I have a. a barber who is the roughest person I know (laughs) but I go there so that I can have a conversation with somebody but it's a difficult time every time (laughs) believe me we cannot put walls bulwarks in front of us to engage people who need to hear the love of God they will stay in a place of separation if we do not seek to show mercy. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with me? So the apostles, John, he can't see how this, this jives, right? Which I think is the honest point Jesus is making here. And the tension that we need to honestly wrestle with. If we love God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, all our strength. then we are to therefore then love our neighbor also. Which is the key principle of Leviticus nineteen eighteen. No, I did not say Matthew. I said Leviticus. That's one of the books that we like to bypass as we're doing our yearly Bible reading plan, right? Which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisees, you can be sure, knew this precept, this law. So we have one man with everything on this earth and another with nothing but pain and misery. But what is significant about this poor name man is his name. Jesus calls him, what's his name? Lazarus. Do you know what that means? Lazarus literally means God has helped. You might look at his earthly life and say, how <laughs> has God helped this miserable soul? I'll tell you. He's helped him by eternally securing him. The second area that they're contrasted is in the afterlife, after death. Verses 22 through 23 says, both men died. One went to the bosom of Abraham and the other, the rich man, went to Hades and he was tormented there. Now there is a popular doctrine being taught in many churches today that I must warn you against. I must tell you that it is unbiblical one and we must avoid at all cost because it makes light of our sin and it makes less of our God. And that is the doctrine of annihilationism, which is the belief that for those who die apart from Christ, simply they cease to exist. They're annihilated. There is no constant judgment. There is no true justice for sin. Annihilation. Now, this is not what the Bible teaches. It's not faithful to the scriptures. And in fact, in this passage alone, Jesus is teaching us that there is a hell. That is a place of torment where the wrath of God is infinitely being poured out endlessly on those who die apart from him. On the unrighteous. It's a place of hopelessness that is devoid of mercy for eternity. And it should serve as a significant warning to us in this life. It's a, it's a warning against rejecting Jesus as Lord. And I mean, that's, it's hard, right? <laughs> it's a hard thing to talk about eternal damnation. But it's a reality we must be honest with. So how did God help Lazarus? He eternally secured him, regardless of his earthly pain and sorrow. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? It's the issue that we're dealing with right here. And what we believe and what we do in the short spectrum of our lives, the Bible says, it matters eternally. Momentary, eternal. We must can keep a long game perspective of what it looks like to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. We must see that it is more than just right now. And so we can hold fast to hope. The next thing that happens in the story is um, the rich man, he cries out, he sees Abraham at At a distance and he cries out to him. And then they engage in this conversation of eternal consequence. Look with me back at verse, starting verse 24. We'll read to the end here. It says, Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during... Your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers to warn them. So that they won't come to this place of torment. But Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No father Abraham he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them. Then they will repent. But he told them if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. In this conversation of eternal consequence. The rich man has two pleas that he makes. And then there are two responses given to him from Abraham that teach us much about the eternal consequences of our sins. And the first plea that the rich man makes is one for himself. Everybody say himself. He's crying across the distance, across this chasm, making a plea to Father Abraham. And he begs for mercy. Simply send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water. And touch my tongue. It's almost like he's saying, Abraham, I'm a Jew. I come from you. Have mercy on me. What we learn first in this text is it doesn't matter who you come from. You are not saved through your family, but through Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Some of our families were like, yeah, no way. Any other way. It's almost like if you didn't know Christ and you died and you're in hell and you looked up and you saw your grandmother, right? You said, Grandma, you used to take me to church with you when I was a kid. Like, you know me. Help me. It's not enough. It cannot save. If you're banking on that, you will be in a bad place. You might say. I'm from Texas. The belt buckle of the Bible belt. I deserve to be in there dadgummit. <laughs> Have mercy on me. It's not enough. It cannot atone. For your sins. John 14.6. Jesus says. I'm the way. The truth. And the life. No one comes to the father. Except through me. Not your family, not through background, not through place of origin, not through cheap words professing Christ but disbelieving in the heart. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we are saved. And that is some firm, stable ground. Is it not? I think we ask the question anytime we read the Bible of, well, what example do I follow or what commands do I need to obey? And I think one example for us to follow is in the life of Lazarus. Something distinct to point out about Lazarus is his humility. He's a testimony of humility. If you look at the text, whether it's on earth in his misery and his pain, he is silent. He doesn't complain. He doesn't grumble. And in heaven, he doesn't gloat over the change of position he's now in. He doesn't gloat over the rich man, nor does he refuse to be an errand boy. No, he maintains a godly, regal silence. And this is one we must seek to mirror humility in the earth whether it's because we're in pain and in sorrow we're contented because of who we know where our hope is whether it's we're being persecuted by others we're okay because our hope is not in the one who can destroy the body but the one who can destroy the body and the soul when injustice occurs we can hope In a God who is just and holy and righteous. We don't have to get out sideways. Neither does Lazarus in his life and in his death. We also see some some tenderness in the text from Abraham. Look how Abraham responds to the rich man's first plea. He says, son or child. He responds tenderly. Remember all the good you received in your life while Lazarus received pain? There is a chasm between us that's uncrossable. And this is the reality of our eternal destinations and our distinctions. For those in Christ, those who gather with Christ, you are eternally secured with God. And for those who reject him, you are eternally secured in hell. The Bible teaches. This is what it says. And you might be thinking right now, well, that's not fair. I think that's a natural response out of our hearts. It's not fair. I want to draw your attention to the rich man. And as he's in hell, as he's in torment, is there evidence of repentance? No. He's still a sinner with full knowledge now fully aware but that does not change his heart he doesn't cease being a sinner now that he knows what was not fair church was the mercy that he refused to show someone in need on his doorstep every day as he stepped over his body to go out the gate that was not fair he makes another plea he makes it for on behalf of his brothers it's the first time the attention's off of him and now it's off onto another when he I think understands like his situation right it's not changing so will you go help my brothers that's the second plea it's the first time he considers other people he says Abraham send Lazarus to my father's house so that my brothers would not end up in here with me I guess he figured that maybe if he saw Lazarus rise from the dead <coughs> excuse me rise from the dead, and gave an eyewitness account, his family then would therefore repent and believe and not receive the same judgment that he has. Now Abraham thought otherwise, did he not? He said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. They have God's law and the word and it's enough abraham says 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 14 paul reminds timothy that from infancy you have heard the scriptures and it has made you wise unto salvation so what does the bible do what does god's word do it makes us wise unto salvation it does, there's no other way to become wise for salvation except through God's word. We don't just walk through life and go, aha. That's not how it works. God reveals himself in a special way in his word to us. And it is all that we need. Man, if we would simply pay attention to this, if we would heed its teachings teachings on mercy, love of God and others, we would see our sin and we would turn to God for mercy. 2 Peter 1.3 says the Bible, Scripture, is sufficient for all of life and godliness. All of it. We would change. We would be transformed. And in light of Christ's ministry, if the Pharisees would just read Moses and the prophets, maybe they would begin to glimpse their need of a Messiah. In the way God has revealed himself, not in the way that they have reinterpreted what the text says. To make themselves the sinner, right? Instead of their God who made them. But the rich man, he disagreed. He essentially said, if I would have seen Lazarus rise from the dead, I would have believed. It's essentially what he's saying. Which, quite frankly, is a testimony against him. He's effectively saying God's word, no, it is not enough. And this is what our culture continues to do to this day. The Bible is not enough. The resurrection is not enough. We need special signs and wonders and miracles for us to believe in God. How arrogant is that? How arrogant, daring to tell God what he must do for us to believe. There's this thing behind me, what's it called? A cross. What he has done is this, and it is enough for us to believe in him. I mean, I, church, I heard this several weeks ago from a young man about 22 years old when he told me how foolish it was to believe that the words written in here are God's words written down by men who he believed he was smarter than. He told me this to my face, blew my mind. He asked the question, how could they know when they were writing it down that this was God's word? And he said, I'll believe it when there's legitimate proof of God affirming Jesus. If you do this, God, then I will. Oh, it broke my heart. I sat in my car and I wept over this man who was going to taste the same anguish as this rich man in the story. It's uncomfortable space. But what you need to know, Christ Community Church, is that what we, we have what we need in God's word. So we must ask ourselves, do we know it? Do we actually know it? Or do we just know some things? Do we know it? Does it move from our heads to our hearts? Do you know Christ as he has revealed himself through the teachings of Moses and the prophets and the apostles and are you being made are you being formed by it and made distinct by it or do you look like everybody else in the world That leads us to the application right the difference maker what is the difference maker between two men The difference maker is a heart that believes in Jesus and continually receives him. For Lazarus, while alive, church, he was as close to hell as he could have ever been. And for the rich man, he was as close to heaven as he could have been. But that is not where they stayed, was it? And it is not where we will stay. We all die. So the question is, who do you love and follow? And how do you express that love to others? So for a moment, why don't we take Abraham's advice? What does Moses, the prophets, and the apostles say about the love of God and about the love that we must show? These are the words of Moses. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In Deuteronomy six verse five, in Leviticus 19:18, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." God, of course, inspired all of these words. Preface that with that. And these are the words of the prophets. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 through 24. And the words of the apostles... If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, then I am nothing. If I give away all that I am, all that I have, and I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing love is patient love is kind it does not envy or boast it's not arrogant or rude it does not insist in its own way it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things. love never ends as for prophecies they will pass away as for tongues they will cease They will cease, and as for knowledge, it will also pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. First Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. Christ Community Church, pain and suffering, although incredibly difficult, they are temporary. And riches and the worldly measures of success, although incredibly easy, They are also temporary. So we must turn back from the sin of materialism, the sin of pride, the sin of I'm good because I come from these people. We must turn away and drink freely from the fountain of living water who finds its source is Christ. Let your faith affect the way you see your wealth and may God... Use the words of Moses, the prophets, and the apostles to free us that we might receive Christ for who he fully is. Let's stand and pray.